0: For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Pago Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity.
1: When you look at a planet as
0: one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet.
1: It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious.
0: We are one world, and
1: that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time.
0: Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. In November of 2018, the InSight lander touched down safely on the surface of Mars. And unlike the rover missions which preceded it, which each embarked on a journey into a geologically interesting place like Jezero Crater or Meridiani Planum, InSight traveled to a flat, featureless plane called Elysium Planitia, and this was because InSight was not looking at the surface, but rather what was underneath. Since then, the mission has been quietly operating and collecting data from its high-precision seismometer instrument called SISE, contributed to NASA by the Centre National d'Études Spatiales, the French Space Agency. And more than one Mars year later, scientists have now published the first findings from the size instrument that help answer the most burning question that the InSight mission is tackling What is the interior structure of Mars? I wanted to learn more about these results, so I called up one of the lead authors, Simon Stähler from ETH in Zurich. All right, so we're here today with Simon Stähler from ETH Zurich. Welcome, Simon. How are you doing?
1: Great, thank you for inviting me. I'm doing fine. How are you doing?
0: I'm excellent. I'm so excited to talk to you today. We've been trying to get this conversation going for a while because we've been waiting for some uh, some science results from the Insight mission and we finally have them. There was a trio of uh, really great papers that came out this week. Uh, you are a lead author on one of them. So we're gonna we're going to dig into all the cool stuff Insight has been doing. Before we do that, though, I always like to learn a little bit about the guests. So please tell us a bit about yourself. What is your background and how did you get into studying uh, seismology on Mars, I guess. Yes,
1: yeah, so I uh, studied physics originally um, a long time ago. And then um, first I wanted to focus on particle physics because I just thought, oh yeah, what they're doing at CERN and so on, that is, that's just awesome. And then just by chance, I had to fill one uh, slot in my study with a non-physical um, course. And that non-physical course was geophysics. So here you see how the physicists think about geophysics. And uh, so I heard that and it was seismology and then I uh, learned about seismic tomography. So and the idea of seismic tomography is you put some um, seismometers around a, stud- a region you want to study, like a big volcano or something, or a whole continent uh, in the most extreme case. And then you're using the signals from earthquakes coming from below to basically create like an X-ray image of that structure, um, like computer-, mm-hmm. computer tomography uh, in medicine. And when I heard that I thought, oh my God, this is so awesome. I want to do exactly <laughs> that. Uh, I want to see what to be able to look into a volcano. And so I um, switched to geophysics the, in the last year basically of my physics course and um, did a PhD in seismology in Munich then working on tomography and Then at the end of my PhD, I was a bit, uh, (laughs) it's actually the same for many people in seismology. When they first hear about tomography, they are super excited. And then you notice, oh my God, it's actually, very often it's not working because it's not like in a a medicine where you can have the the patient um, between the x-ray and the receiver and uh, put the x-ray wherever you need it. But we need to work with earthquakes where they are. Um, And the earthquakes, of course, are just on a few locations on the earth. And seismic stations are also just on the continents, and then only in some rich countries basically. And so therefore mm-hmm. the result is sometimes a bit underwhelming um, the result of tomography. And so then I decided to do something else, but still stay in seismology. and one um, accidental um, result was we computed a um, or we sorry, we produced a code that um, computes seismic wave propagation through the earth. And so then I needed to check how well this code is running. And so I modified the earth a bit. I basically put in a larger outer core and so on. And then at one point I thought, Oh, I, I will do Europa now. So the Jupiter moon Europa uh, with the big ocean under the ice. And so I really perturbed the earth so much that it was Europa in the end, with a, a tiny mantle on top of a uh, outer <laughs> core that was the ocean, on top of an inner core that is the whole moon, basically. So then I made a movie out of that and uh, uploaded it to YouTube and um, forgot about it basically immediately. And then uh, some years, some two years later, I got a mail from a person with a JPL email address, uh, which asked me, um, hey, sorry, we need to compute waveforms, seismic waveforms for Europa. And we saw you did this video. How did you do it? Can you repeat it for us? And um, yeah, this was actually how I uh, got to learn a few people from JPL, um, so Steve Vance and Mark Penning and Bruce Bennard. and then uh, thought about working at JPL, but it didn't work out because moving to LA was difficult with the family, and so then um, uh, I got an offer from ETH in Zurich to not directly go to Europa, but rather work on Martian seismology uh, for the time being, because that was basically a year before Insight would land, and um, yeah, so this is how I got started, uh, how I got stuck on Mars now uh, for the last two and a half years uh, working with Marsquakes.
0: I'm laughing because you, you described how you, you can't put the x-ray machine where you want on, on Earth because there's, you know, only so many places there are seismometers. And that being frustrating, I find it really funny that you chose to go then work on Mars where you have <laughs> one single instrument <laughs> and it's even, you know, an order of magnitude harder.
1: <laughs> of course, you're right. You're, the, the good thing about Mars is then that the expectations are a bit lower. So we don't want the, okay, the, yeah. the images of the interior of the planet. We're fine with just... Uh, knowing how thick the crust is and how large the core is. uh, So that's, that's of course, the cool thing. You can really do um, first-order science on Mars. Um, uh, While on Earth, of course, every problem is extremely complicated and everything easy has already been solved. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, so let's talk a bit about um, the Insight mission and the seismometer. I, I haven't really done a full science episode on this mission. I haven't really talked about it since it kind of launched and landed. It's been just parked for a while doing, doing data collection. So maybe can you start with a, a bit of an overview on this size instrument? That's the seismometer instrument on Insight. How does it work? And, and what is this data set that you've been building uh, since it landed in 2018?
1: Basically, a seismometer is always really, uh, in a way, it's really a simplistic 19th century uh, machine. It's just some heavy mass that is usually on the other. It's not so heavy. It's, let's say, 50 gram or um, so. And that mass is on a spring. And uh, whenever the ground um, moves below that mass, the mass is just a little bit delayed in its motion. And therefore... so, the spring is uh, pulling on the mass, but the mass is a bit delayed. The mass stays basically uh, at its place while the ground is moving. And so, then you're looking at the um, displacement of that mass with respect to the frame of the instrument around it. And so, of course, the smart meters have they are hyper precise instruments in the meantime, but fundamentally, it's always that idea it's a mass and a spring. And now, the, the thing where inside really needs to go a bit beyond what we do on Earth. Um, if you want to place a super-sensitive seismometer on Earth, you dig a deep hole, you put concrete on the floor, and then you place a seismometer on the concrete, and then you cover it, and you cover it more, and you put Earth on top of it so that the temperature of that seismometer stays constant by a degree or two over the day and night, and also that it's insulated from wind and everything. Of course, with inside now, the problem is we are on Mars, where the days are 80 80 Kelvin um, hotter than the night's, So at the location of InSight, we are between minus 20 degrees centigrade and minus 100 degrees centigrade between day and night, which a seismometer normally does not want. So therefore, into InSight, they build some very complicated thermal compensation mechanisms that um, take care of that. And then they put it into a vacuum sphere that is roughly the size of a football. And then on top of that, there is this wind and thermal shield that... Uh, it's this white, shiny dome that you uh, often see on the inside images. And then actually around that white, shiny dome, there's a little um, chain chainmail um, uh, suit that basically stops any dust from getting there from the side. Fun fact, uh, this chainmail suit apparently was made from the company that also uh, produces uh, Madonna's dresses for her, her live life show sometimes <laughs> when she wears a chainmail thing. And apparently it's the same company that built that. Uh,
0: yeah, it's actually it's nearby me. It's in uh, it's in Saskatchewan, in Canada.
1: Oh, really? Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, but yeah. So far, I only knew it as this. This uh, I never <laughs> could write, put pin down where it was ah, Now No, I know that.
0: I'll, I'll send you a link. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a company. Uh, um, here in the prairies where i am right now and it's uh it's it's pretty cool they do a lot of uh, funky stuff but they got a cool nasa
1: contract so <laughs> cool yeah so um, and then in the end um, you have a basically you have three seismometers of course because you want to measure the the, the displacement of the ground um, in vertical and in both horizontal directions and um they together are at least during the nights when it's when there's no wind locally, they are really super sensitive. Then we are really talking about a displacement of 10 to the minus 10 meters, which is less than the diameter of an atom. Um so, really, if you would push one atom below inside, uh, the, sorry, the seismometer would measure it. And that is, uh, that is really the basically what made all of that possible. All of these discoveries that we are at least parts of the day so extremely sensitive to whatever is happening. On Mars.
0: Wow. Wow. And so so this has been kind of just turned on and listening for the last two and a half years. Is that basically the extent of how the data collection works?
1: Yes. And I think that is a bit maybe what sometimes is a bit difficult to to explain to people. When you think about a space mission, it's often that you have a basically you have a checklist of things you need to do. Okay, on the first day we take a picture of that and then we drive to this this rock and pick up this rock collect samples here we drive somewhere else collect samples there and then we're done While well, with inside it was really apart from this heat probe which we can talk about separately um for the seismometer it was really just um find a good place to play uh, to place it place it there then attach this cable a little bit so that it's um, straight and that it's not uh, pulling and then just put this madonna wind and thermal shield cover on top of it And after that, basically for the engineers, the mission was almost, it would have been over if it had not been for the um, HPQ um, peculiarities. Then we are in the so-called science monitoring phase where we basically just waited for Mars to do its thing and tell us something about itself with Mars quakes
0: right okay so tell us broadly about mars quakes too then so um, are these kind of the same thing that we would have on earth they're just in a different planet or are there something unique about them like what are they what are the general characteristics of a mars quake? where do they come from what do they feel like
1: so one thing is that they are most of them are really small so the largest Mars quakes we have observed so far are magnitude 3.7 so that is that means if you were nearby, you would still feel it, um, but probably if you were walking, you could already maybe just miss it. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. people in California, these are basically uh, every other week uh, you would have one and, and in most places on the earth, you have a good chance of, of uh, witnessing um, such a quake uh, once every f- few years, basically. And. Um, but, and most of the quakes we are seeing on Mars actually come from one specific region. So this is a Severus Fossae um, region, which for me was completely—I uh, had no idea about that before I joined Insight. And I assume that even most people who study Mars, for them, it, it's probably not the most uh, the most interesting um, region um, on Mars. But what is peculiar about it is that. Uh, it's one of the youngest um, tectonically active regions um, already as seen from orbit. So there are some, it's basically one, um, w- roughly 1,000 kilometer long um, Graben. Well, it's actually not one, it's several that are um, slightly overlapping, but it's one long system that is in parts 500 meters wide, maybe, and a few hundred meters deep. So it is quite large. And at the Western end of it, um, there are some regions which look as if there had been either, either water or lava come out some two million years ago. So by Martian standards, yesterday, basically. And yeah. um, um, that is the region, that's actually the region where we see most of the Mars quakes coming from, which is cool because it's a young tectonic region on Mars and indeed it is the active region. But the difference to Earth is that, of course, on Earth, you're having almost all quakes happening at plate boundaries, Um, while Mars is a planet that does not have plate boundaries because it's just one large plate all over the planet. So, therefore, the formation mechanism for Mars quakes must be a different one from Earth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was watching the Insight um, Science Briefing this morning, and what uh, the guy you mentioned, Mark Panning, was on there, and he was talking about how quiet Mars is, and you have the, the plate tectonics is different. So there's one giant plate, so nothing's crashing into each other or subducting or doing all the things that plates do, and then there's no oceans that are you know continually battering up against the coasts on Earth, hmm. and so he described it as a very quiet place. It's very serene, I guess, seismologically speaking.
1: <laughs> it is. Okay. So actually a question we are still not super sure or we're not quite sure about is whether it is, if you would basically, if you would try to find an analog region on Earth, what that would be. Um, So if you would take the, let's say, Eastern, Northern America, um, it is probably a bit more active than that um, because you have the Appalachians, which are ancient, but which are still a large mountain range. So they cause some residual stress and crust around it. And every other year you have a magnitude five earthquake there as well. And the really quiet regions on the Earth, like northern Asia, Siberia, basically, or um, northwestern uh, Africa, they are just places where you don't have a seismometer, because why would you put a seismometer on Earth where there are never any earthquakes? So we don't know, actually, um, how many small magnitude three or so earthquakes there are. Um, but I guess if you would have to compare it somewhere between that, so somewhere between the super quiet re- interplate regions on Earth and um, um the slightly more active regions mm. like East and northern america
0: also interesting okay so let's talk about some of these results so uh yeah like i said there was three papers that came out and these were really um these are going after answering this question of what is the inside of mars look like what does this interior structure look like and it was kind of cool because there was a paper about the crust there was a paper about the mantle and there was a paper about the core um so Can you sort of explain how a seismometer on the surface can tell you anything about the inside of the planet? Like, how did we get to being able to to make papers like this?
1: So the idea is always, it goes a bit bit back to uh, what I described earlier with this seismic tomography. So you are using the earthquakes basically as powerful sound sources um, that place a lot of energy somewhere in, in the interior of the planet. And then this energy travels as a wave through the interior, and it's reflected somewhere, it's converted into other wave types somewhere. Then basically, you are standing somewhere else, and you're recording how the ground shakes due to that quake. And then you basically need to unravel the whole story of how this ground shaking that you're recording a thousand kilometers away from the quake, how that came to be. And usually it's easy because you have two very strong... um, Clear arrivals, the so-called primary wave and the so-called secondary wave. Um, the primary wave is, has a motion in the direction of propagation, so it's the same as the sound wave in, a, in the air. While the shear wave is orthogonal to that, so it's um moving either up and down the wave or um basically left and right um as seen from the direction of propagation. And from the time and we know that these shear waves are always um slower than the P waves. And so from the time separation between the two. You can get the distance of the event to some extent with some precision if you make some assumptions about the interior and so for a long time what we had uh, with the inside mission is that we had for a lot of events we had the time differences between p and s waves and therefore we knew for example that they were in several Fosse because it was the right distance and from the the direction the ground was moving we knew the direction of the quake um, Then a bit later, what we uh, found after more processing of the data, we found um, basically we could identify additional arrivals that were not just these waves, but there were maybe, for example, a primary, a P wave coming in from below at the crust. And then at the interface between the crust and the mantle, a little bit of the P wave energy was converted into an S wave, traveled slower, and therefore arrived maybe some 10 seconds after the first P wave. And basically from that, we knew that there must be some strong contrast in the material a good uh, 10 kilometers below the lander. And then we looked a bit more and we found another one at 20 uh, 20 kilometers and then another not-so-clear one at 35 kilometers below the lander. Basically, then we said, oh, okay, we want to know about the crustal thickness. And if Mars is anything like Earth, um, it has a crust out of, um, sorry, out of material that has, okay, let's go into that later. It has a crust and a mantle and so that seismological interface, that must basically be this, the interface between the crust and the mantle. And then for the core, it is, um, uh, we're basically waiting for an echo. So much after the P wave and the S wave has have passed through the, um, the station and the ground has basically become quiet again, then after some 500 seconds or so, you hear a little additional blob. You, you basically see a little bit of extra motion that you cannot explain from the from the quake initially, because that is really then the echo of the wave coming back up from the core. And so then you have a travel time towards the core. Um, and then you need to start making assumptions about the uh, what could the wave speeds be in the interior. You can use some other waves to determine that as well. And then in the end, you put all these travel times into one inversion machine, basically, which then tries to find a velocity model of the interior of Mars that fits these data. And then as a result, you basically get a temperature profile of Mars, you get some constraints on the composition and uh, specifically the radius of the core of Mars.
0: So it's a lot, of, a lot of deduction, a lot of math you have to do to sort of tease out this information from all these different places. So and what, what did you end up learning then? It's like, what was the, the result we have? Is it the structure the same as Earth? Are there differences? What, what didn't you expect? What was right in line?
1: So one thing that, had, um, that scientists had observed long ago is that Mars as a whole is a lot less dense than the Earth. It's roughly um, some four and a half um, gram per cubic centimeters while Earth is uh, 5.8 or roughly 6 grams per so 25% um, heavier. And so, um, planets, is, planets are generally made up of um, rocks, at, well, the outer, the mantle, and the crust, and uh, iron plus some light elements in the core. And so therefore, if Mars as a whole is lighter than the Earth, the assumption was that, oh, okay, that means it probably has less of the heavy stuff and more of the light stuff. So therefore the core is relatively small on Mars. And that is um, basically that view had been challenged a bit in the recent years by um, observations from satellites, which measured exactly the tidal um, response. So how much mass deforms uh, due to the um, tides of the sun. Um, it had been challenged and there were some some signs that the Martian core could actually be a bit larger than predicted from this uh, from this average density of the planet. Now what we found is that it's probably even a bit larger than these uh, mm-hmm. these recent results um, before had shown. And if the core, for example, is so large um, and it's still the planet is relatively light, then it means that uh, the core must also be light. But the primary material of the of the core is still iron, and we find that the core must, in the end be lighter than iron proper. While the Earth's core is actually heavier than iron because it's compressed so much uh, due to the weight of the layers above it, the Martian core is lighter. So therefore, you need to put in some light elements into the core. And then basically, this is where my work as a seismologist ends completely. But then where the chemists <laughs> and the planetary science scientists come in and they say, oh, it's sulfur. Uh, sulfur could be one candidate. Um, and then we check, but oh, you would need 30% of sulfur uh, for the core with this. Density. No, that will—that's too much. You can't have thirty percent. So you need oxygen or hydrogen. Um, but then, of course, oxygen—oxygen oxygen is relatively abundant, but it only goes into the core under certain temperature conditions. And then hydrogen—hydrogen hydrogen is usually not very abundant, uh, but it was very abundant in the early solar system, basically before the sun um, started to to really burn and blow all the gas out of the um, solar system, out of the nebula. So maybe that means that Mars formed extremely early and um, just picked up a lot of light elements when it was forming uh, very very early, or it had additional um, plant, uh, small bodies crashing in um, from the outer solar system that were perturbed from Jupiter and thus came in. And so these are all the <laughs> the wild uh, or the wide ranging um, <laughs> um, inferences that people then um, other people then make of our results about the core size. Um, and then you're really going to the evolution of the whole planet and the whole solar I I,
0: li- I like that story because, you know, so there's this assumption that it's a small core and then you guys measure it and you're like, actually, it's bigger, by the way, and now it's your problem to figure out why. Have, have, a, have a good day. <laughs> and you just kind of pass it off to them. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, it's. I uh, uh, Then you notice really how how um, differentiated various scientific communities are. Um, so of course, I can I can talk to the, the geochemists, and I can try to understand their arguments. But of course, it's basically their own world, and for them, it's great because they they were really they were lacking data basically all the time. Um, so you can always make um, planetary models um, based on first principles. Basically, you know how iron behaves when it becomes um, hotter. And, um and so on and you can make build a whole planet out of such thermodynamic assumptions. But if you don't have any data to constrain these models against, then the models will always fit very well. you're non-existing data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh so what
0: about the uh the mantle and the the crust? What did, what did we learn from from those parts of the uh planet?
1: So so one thing about the uh, um the mantle that we learned is the um or mantles in general have a, a one layer on top, which is called lithosphere, which is a, um, the part of the a relatively solid part of the mantle that does not really undergo um, convection, um, but that stays more or less the same. And one question was how thick that um, part actually is, because um, on Earth that is relatively thin, on the order of 200 kilometers. And as you know, on Earth we have having plate tectonics, so. It's not, only the, it's not only the top that is moving, um, let's say, America and Europe are a little bit away from each other. India crashes into Asia and builds say, Malaya. So that's not all, only the surface, that, but it is really this whole root of the lithosphere that moves with it. Um, and so what we found on Mars is that in, actually on the Mars, this lithosphere is super thick, so in the order of 600 kilometers. So three times as thick as on Earth, even though the planet is only half the size. So that Hmm. is actually a pretty um, good explanation for why we never had plate tectonics, why Mars apparently was always a single plate planet where nothing moved with respect to another. Of course, now you have to ask, uh, why is the lithosphere so thick? And uh, that's again where now the planetary scientists in general will hopefully have something to work on in the next years.
0: (laughs) Another question you can punt off to them, it's great um and then the, the the crust i read something about there being like sub layers on the crust can you talk a little bit about that
1: yes uh, this is what i um what what i mentioned before this strong interface in 10 kilometer depth that we're finding and um i would say we don't yet know what that is um so on the earth um um you sometimes do find this specifically in older um, continental crust but the uh, the difference is that this older continental crust is it has formed completely different on earth because since you had plate tectonics on earth you had a long story of recycling of materials so things came up through volcanoes um things were eroded and so on so and therefore our crust on the earth is really a completely different product than the martian crust which in a lot of ways is more pristine so it's not so easy how you would get that interface it might be that this is um that is due to porosity basically that the upper 10 kilometers are just not as compacted as what is Mm. below but this is um yeah this is again something we don't yet understand um,
0: could it be related to like the the age so I, i mean if there's if there's no plate tectonics on mars that means you're not you're not doing what you said like the recycling you're not You know, subducting plates away into the mantle to be gone forever and then creating new plates at the at the you know the place, the parts where they split apart, you know, under the ocean. So if if these plates are just were kind of created and they've just been like that forever, is there some sort of further almost like sorting or differentiation that could be happened because of the longer time scales? I'm I'm coming up with theories here like I'm some sort of geologist but
1: i'm not a geologist either but so um, <laughs> usually differentiation on earth um happens um or the classical process for that is um the so-called partial melting so you have as basically everything that is in the mantle is a wild mixture of um, different elements with different melting points so if you bring these um these elements to the to the surface and lower the pressure and lower the temperature then just some of it will at one point start to melt first uh um Um, out of the solid, so the mantle is solid. um, uh, And so that what melts first is then usually lava um, or creates lava and uh, during volcanism. And so basically on on Mars, and that is what is causing the differentiation on Earth um, between the mantle and uh, the crust and um, also within the crust. And it seems that this process, just because there was so little volcanism on Mars, that this process actually probably never took place so much. So at least with the mechanisms we know from Earth, you would expect less differentiation on Mars. Um, But Mm. Maybe there are processes in single plate planets that we just don't know yet because we are not living on one. (laughs) And so this is where we're really looking into Mars as teaching us something else about planet, something about planets in general that we would not learn from looking at Earth uh, any longer.
0: Well, if I've learned anything from from uh, paying attention to Mars is that there are a lot of processes that we don't understand. So I would believe that theory. <laughs> um, so let's talk a bit about the the mission and the future here as well. Um, I thought we'd take the opportunity to kind of talk about what's next for InSight. Um, there have been some some power issues lately. Um, this is kind of in the news a lot. We're seeing a lot of dust on the solar panels, which are um, inhibiting the amount of sunlight that the, uh, the spacecraft can use. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what the the health situation is of the spacecraft now how long can you keep collecting data is there anything we can do about it i guess
1: yeah that's a, a that's a very good question and um, until maybe some 3 or 4 months ago i would have said oh no there's nothing we can do we are doomed we will uh die a cold death on mars um but actually it turned out that there was something we could do so um There had been these activities to bury the tether so bury the cable that goes from the um from the lander to the seismometer because if the temperature changes so much um, then of course this cable just extends and pushes the super sensitive seismometer from the side and you don't want that Um, so the idea was before we even thought about the power just to bury that percent and at the first burial um, attempt, um, a little of, little bit of the sand fell on this shiny white dome, um, the, the wind and thermal shield. And the part where the dust fell, it was super clean afterwards, just because the sand had basically, uh, uh, as a powder cleaner, removed all the uh, dirt from it. And so then some people thought, oh, wait, uh, if we have such a tool to uh, clean things, um, why don't we try that on the solar panels? And then... This sounds a lot easier now than it was in practice, because every motion that this robot arm is doing needs to be tested in the test bed at JPL. And of course, they need to be sure that it's working and they need to program a sequence. So in the end, that took a few weeks to um, figure out. And it was a great engineering effort. And it indeed, it was tried. So we picked up a little bit of sand and the arm cannot go directly over the solar panels. So we had to drop it um, over the lander at the time when we knew that the wind was coming westward. So it would blow a little <laughs> bit of the sand onto the solar panels. And of course, you saw the reaction on Twitter when these images first came down and uh, it just looked as if there was some, some sand dropped on the solar, uh, to, on the lander deck. It looked <laughs> as if it's, like it's burying itself or whatever it's actually doing. <laughs> People had a lot of fun speculating about that on Twitter, but... Uh, <laughs> Actually, that was great because that gave us fifteen um, percent of additional power um, because it really cleaned a little part of the solar panels. And then the the engineers at JPL, um, I mean, start a bit earlier. So the the main problem with the the power was that we all the electronics um, they have a certain minimum temperature which they should not uh, exceed. So therefore, uh, you have at one point you, in the winter, Martian winter, you just need to heat the lander such that they are not the electronics are not freezing, and so the JPL engineers went through the books and really looked, um, okay, here we assumed 30 um, degree. Can it also go to minus 40? Yeah, probably it can. Okay, we can save one watt here and then another watt here. And then maybe if we leave on a scientific instrument, will it heat enough? Um, because it's also consuming power. And so in the end, they reduced the the minimum necessary power for survival by another 20% or so. And so in the end, yeah, we were back in... Back in business and uh, can probably operate for another year or so um, before it will get really dire assuming the current um degradation rate of the solar panels
0: so uh, what kind of extra data do you hope to collect in that time you know so if we get this kind of bonus year um you've got an entire mars year of data in your collection already what are you going to learn with you know more like what's what's the the benefit the incremental benefit
1: so the as a generally in, in, in seismologies and is this let's wait for earthquake signs, um, Waiting longer is always better because it gives you more quakes. Uh, and of course, there's always a chance that you will have one large one quake that is larger than all the previous ones. Um, for example, one thing that we would really like to observe is a quake that is so large that we see so called surface waves. So, waves that travel along um, the surface. And they basically collect along their path. They collect information about the thickness of the crust, not where we are within sight, but along the whole path. So, if such an event would occur, let's say in the south, where the crust is probably much thicker, the south of the dichotomy, we would actually know how thick the crust is there, even though we have not landed there. So that would be awesome. And uh, the problem and the thing is that the Martian seasons are such that currently we are in the winter um, because Mars is furthest away from the sun. Um, So it's coldest right now, but that also means that the wind is um, least aggressive in the moment. And therefore, we are actually quiet and we can really listen for quakes very well. So it would really have been a pity had we to go into a standby mode for the next months when uh, the, the seasons are great for listening for mass quakes and then switch on again when the wind is coming back and we don't hear anything at all. So therefore, these few extra months that we're getting between now and the end of our year on earth um they are really crucial and they will probably double the amount of um, data that we get and then after that let's see what happens
0: Hmm. and you've kind of touched on on sort of the value that insight has been given but where does where does a geophysics mission like this kind of fit into the greater portfolio of science exploration i mean I, i think we spend a lot of time doing like you said the traditional drive here hit this rock take a picture you know like that kind of Uh, very active science um are we doing enough of these geophysics missions or would we be better off having more to complement uh exploration of mars with all the orbiters and rovers i mean of
1: course there are always a lot of um there are a lot of ways in which you can look at a um, planet but just just a lot of these these methods are um very limited to the surface which is great because um all these uh, let's say high rise on MRO or um, also everything that was on a, um, what was its name the, the the first mars mission in the 2000s the first orbiter um,
0: like the global surveyor maybe or
1: exactly yeah, yeah. So the, for example the coverage of um, the spectroscopic coverage of the whole planet um and the the infrared images. Um, this is great because it can cover the whole planet and you basically, you can make differential arguments about, okay, here there seems to be more dust. We see that in the infrared image than elsewhere. But the problem is in the end, you're always limited to the surface and you can maybe say something about the composition of the surface, but specifically on a planet like Mars, where not much, as much material is coming out um, from the interior because you're not having um, volcanism. You are really limited with what has been degraded over the times by um, meteorites by wind and so on, and really to look into the interior of the planet um such a let's say passive geophysical mission that is just standing in one place, not doing anything, not driving around, but just observing more like an observatory on earth, a quiet observatory that is really completely novel information, and the other thing is that um So I I said that we had some idea about the core size from this tidal measurements of the tidal deformation, which you can do from orbit and you can do such, um, you can get such data for for Mercury um, or you could get it in the future for Venus as well. Um, And probably we won't have a seismometer on Venus ever that will last a few years and maybe we'll never get a core signature from seismology. But the great thing about INSIGHT is that basically we kind of calibrated this space-based mission, uh, uh, space-based observations now. We don't have to rely only on first principles and Earth, but we have a third point in the middle. So we can actually learn a lot more about, um, basically learn more about what we can learn from orbit on places where we won't land, which of course also then includes the whole um, outer solar system. Beyond that, even um, you know we're having uh, Kepler. The Kepler mission discovered uh, thousands of exoplanets, and even though there were these great images of maybe the um, something like a moon um, around an exoplanet, very very recently last week. Um, um, for the majority of those um, exoplanets, we will never know more than the density, the size, and uh, maybe a bit about the chemistry of the the solar system in which it's in. So therefore, if we want to say anything about Uh, these planets, um, whether they have plate tectonics, if they have a certain size or what their cores are like and whether they plate tectonics or it is assumed that plate tectonics and you have stabilized the atmosphere, for example. So knowing whether there's plate tectonics on other planets is a crucial thing. But for that, we need to understand why the earth has plate tectonics and Mars does not. So really calibrating everything we infer about the universe um, and the other planets, um, that relies on knowing the interior of the terrestrial planets and the only terrestrial planet where we can operate a two physical observatory for a long time is Mars in the moment. So therefore, that's, that's really extending our view of the whole set of planets elsewhere.
0: That's awesome. Well, hopefully we can get a few more there and and get some even more uh, rich data sets. (laughs) Well, uh, Simon, this has been just a fantastic conversation. I'm so excited about what we've learned from Insight. Uh, If they want to learn more about uh, the results or the mission or you, uh, where should they go on the internet? I'll I'll put links to the papers in the, the show notes, but anything else you want to share in terms of websites or social media accounts or anything?
1: Um, I do have a Twitter account. I should probably tweet a bit more about Inside Science, um, and I think now that we're having these papers out, I will definitely try to um, try to write up these uh, papers' findings in, uh, uh, in an outreach um, shape. Um, otherwise, the Inside website on uh, from NASA. Um, after the whole mole story is over, we have, we will push up for a bit more science on that side again. And um, yeah, otherwise. Um, if we find something, you'll hear about it.
0: Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Simon. This is really cool. Uh, I'm so glad to have had you on the show.
1: Thank you, Jake, for
0: inviting me. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thank you to Simon for sharing these results and a big congratulations to the entire Insight team for performing such valuable science. And as always, please consider supporting us on Patreon where memberships are as low as $3 a month and they get you access to an entire other podcast, our Discord community, and more. I think it's a pretty good deal. You can get there at wemartians.com slash support. Have a great week and at Aries. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.